This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. The young shining cuckoo is fed by its foster parents on insects and spiders. But the korimako, or bellbird, has a much more interesting diet of nectar. It's been something of a radio personality and has sung on shortwave radio to Australia and the Pacific nations for 30 years. However, the early recordings failed to reflect the versatility of the bellbird, with its wide variety of liquid notes and artistically placed clicks and bell-like sounds. It's not surprising that Maori mythology describes Korimako, the bellbird, as the messenger of Tane, sent to herald the coming of the sun. Community or chaos, we can construct and nurture community or fall into chaos. Over the next hour, Marvin Hubbard hosts conversations toward creating a fairer, more equal society. Community or chaos is made possible with the support of Quakers Aotearoa. You'll find them online at quaker.org.nz. Good day, friends. Today we have with us Jim O'Malley, a city councillor and the person in charge of Infrastructure Services Committee, which is very important in Dunedin. And he's also a representative of the Otago Southland Regional Council Transport Committee. And we'll be talking actually about democracy and its deficits. You can podcast this by going to oar.org.nz, then going to podcasting, going community or chaos. Welcome aboard, Jim, and um, thanks a lot for coming on. Good morning, Rob. It's great to be here. Thanks for having no, me. I almost didn't make it. My chain of my bicycle chain came off. And I went to the wrong building, so we both started out badly today. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think we first might start. What are some of the factors that may be needed? To diminish democracy in Aotearoa, New Zealand, other parts of the world too, I suspect. Um, it's interesting you bring that up because I've been working on something recently about the role of the Department of Internal Affairs and the development of the Three Waters Policy and to the extent to which um, lobbyists got in very early in the whole process. Um, and I'm going through a whole heap of emails that were extracted from an um, Artificial Information Act request. Um, and what I'm seeing in those emails is whole democratic processes that have been developed by non-elected officials of government long before the elected officials even know they're coming, and then taking them on as if it's their policy, but in fact they never really wrote them. And I think that what that does is it's causing a... a um, lack of attachment between the government and the community because it's starting to be more or less run by technocrats I guess would be the way to describe it. That's a real problem I think and it's, it's been happening and it's one of the problems of the European Union the bureaucracy between the voters and the, um, the rest. There's an incredible tension between elected government and um, permanent government and I think that you know, I can understand how, where it comes from. People who are in the permanent side of government can have seen governments come and go and they will have a view of what they think society should look like. And, of course, they are the constant, which means often as not they have a lot of influence on what comes next. You know, that was in the old TV comedy, um, Yes Minister. You saw that played out all the time. Sure. That was a great radio program. And it hasn't dated at all. <laughs> Well, what are some of the other factors that might have recently diminished democracy? Well, I think one of the other things is whether or not your local MPs are generally local anymore or whether they are party MPs who happen to live locally. I think party politics around the world, New Zealand included, has got very entrenched into us versus them and my party winning versus the other parties. And that can detract away from a lot of the things that go into good outcomes for local communities. You know, it seems to me that um, 
What do you think about the election cycle? Would four years be better? Would they be more? Sta- would governments have any more courage if they had four years? I'd still, I'd still think they'd lose their bottle on year two as, as opposed to year one. That'd be about it. Um, I could see a four-year cycle being probably okay. I didn't, uh, but the fact of the matter is that US has a four-year cycle. It hasn't really brought them fantastic democracy. So the cycle itself is is one aspect of it. But it really, it's it's about how well you design the system and how well you make sure it plays out. I think a government should understand that it's unlikely to achieve anything in three years that's going to be able to be shown up. So if they're they're worried about the three-year cycle, it would indicate that their underlying understanding of their own theory isn't that great because they should be able to explain that to the voter as to why you need to vote them in again for a second round, to be honest. Of course, you've got to have some policy. Well, no, that's the whole point, though. If you've got good policy, you shouldn't worry about a three-year cycle or a four-year cycle because you'll just go in and enact that policy, you know? Well, that's one of the interesting things about this present election cycle, well, this present election, because uh, people... Grant Robinson surprised me considerably. I've always thought of him as a very conservative economist. But he and... um, the Minister for Revenue uh, proposed uh, tax reform and more equalitarian tax reform, including capital gains. But they would they would um, propose that they proposed that <coughs> this should be promised during the election, but not carried out until after the election. So you got your tax reform if you voted for the government. And what happened was the um, prime minister was overseas and didn't like it. And he made what he called the captain's call yeah. and said, you're not going to see anything in this budget, but you're also you're not going to see anything like that in the next three years before we get re-elected. Uh, what does this mean about democracy? Um, <clears throat> so that goes to the what I call the president's side turning a prime minister into a president. Um, Realistically, I don't think a party should have the opportunity where the leader has what apparently appears to be a veto right and a veto vote over the ministers. I mean, without a cabinet meeting, um, I don't think they had a position that he could have taken. So unless he was speaking from a quick cabinet meeting was had over Zoom, he was acting like... A president, and well, that captain's call stuff came from John Key. So, bit of a surprise that Labor's now acting like an old national prime minister. You know, it's pretty obvious they didn't have that kind of discussion because not only was he overseas at a NATO conference, he said it was a captain's call. Is there such a thing? Um, <laughs> there didn't used to be, but apparently there um, there is now, and that and that I think speaks to how just unbelievably centrist Labour has become, you know. Okay. How does economic inequality in New Zealand, uh, the deficit in, in uh, economic equality, equate to a democratic deficit? I think you already touched on this with um, lobbies. I think... Well, I think it's sort of the other way around. There is a democratic deficit in New Zealand at the moment where there's no genuine left of centre anymore that can execute government. Um, Greens would argue that they're left of centre and I would say that they are and their heart's in the right place, but they haven't, in my opinion, demonstrated that they, they, they would be able to be a standalone government. Labor has demonstrated, obviously, in the past and currently that it can be, but it is no longer on the left. So we've got, in my opinion an effective left that's missing, which then gets gives us the economic inequity that we've had right now. Because we've got to ask this question, and again, it's around the Western world. Inequality of wealth has started to appear over the last 30 years through the same economic policies that have been generated in all those countries, which has caused us to dig ourselves a hole. And instead of addressing that, we just dig a little bit deeper, unfortunately. We double down on, on market-based economic policies and forget the role of, of a strong central government. That's one of the... read an article in The Guardian a few, few weeks back or a couple of months back 
talking about the the representation of ordinary people, what used to be called the working class. And we're talking about the working class, we're talking about the average New Zealander. We're not talking about people under grinding poverty, although many of them are. Uh, but in most center-left parties have adopted neoliberal economics to a degree. Mm -hmm. And they've also, they're full of people who've, well, the, one of the things I pointed out to somebody interviewed recently is that um, in the government that brought in neoliberalism had more university graduates than any government before that. Mm -hmm. It was fully university graduate, and they all had free education. But this is the case that the only people that seem to be getting into control of left-wing or so-called center-left governments in Europe and and in the English-speaking country are an intellectual elite. Yeah, I hate using the word elite just in case you get classified as a person who's got a, like a biased view coming in. But yeah, um, I think it's fair to say that that's been an observation that's been made by a lot of people asking why has the left, left lost its teeth? And I think it's, it is because a lot of those parties are dominated by educated people who have comfortable lives who really don't know what it's like to worry about paycheck to paycheck, and they've gone and got themselves a second house somewhere. And they're on the property ladder and all these other things which are completely an anathema to um, equality of wealth and fairness in society. The other thing is I think that people, I think it hasn't gone as far in New Zealand as it has some places, but people have a feeling that their rulers have a slight contempt for them. <coughs> Yeah, I, I, I wouldn't call it slight, to be honest. I mean, I, I've run into politicians where you quite literally, as you're speaking, you can see them turn their ears off. They're paying no attention. They're just waiting for you to stop speaking. And these are our central government MPs, and it's very disappointing when you run into that attitude. I won't mention names. <laughs> well, one of the things, I talked to a, an acquaintance recently who's on the left, as I am, I suppose, he would have said that anyway. We were talking about Trump's election, and I mentioned that many of the people in the Rust Belt, most of the people in the Rust Belt who voted for Trump also voted for Obama twice. He wouldn't believe that because he had to believe that they only voted for Trump because they were racist yeah. or anti-feminist. Now, that shows a, a distance from what's actually going on. Mm -hmm. It also shows a certain contempt for people you disagree with. Yeah, and it also, when you get into that environment where you can dismiss any view that is not yours as being an inferior view brought about by people you would define as inferior people, so give them a good inferior label like racist, and then you can now discount them from that point on. But you're quite right, that that's how those votes went, and that's why I've always been of the opinion that if the Democrats had picked Sanders instead of um, Clinton, the outcome actually would have been the exact opposite. It would have been a democratic um, landslide. People were looking for change because they are down on their last dollar. You know? Okay, how does lobbying work in New Zealand? Exactly the same way it works in the United States. Um, Federated Farmers, I believe, I can't remember the exact number, I'll get it slightly wrong, but it's more than 20 and less than 60. I think it's like 40 um, full-time um, lobbyists in the beehive. Now, if you think that number of people wandering around the building, getting in your ear all the time, doesn't have an influence on outcomes, then you're pretty naive. And like I said, the emails that I'm trolling through right now from the, from 2017, looking at the influence of water New Zealand and infrastructure New Zealand on three wars design, shows that lobbyists were directly contacting staff during the design period of government policy and asking to influence the policy. What do you think about the fact that lobbyists go right into cabinet if they get, if they join a party and get elected, and then after they're finished uh, with you know if they get 
if they lose an election or if they are no longer in peace, the very next uh, month, they may actually become lobbyists. Yeah. So in the States, that's called the revolving door. And I think it's, it's appearing here now too. That whole idea, you go out one door and you come in the other with a different hat on. And, you know, the, the answer to that would be quite simple, a cooling down time of X number of years after you've been in politics before you're allowed to lobby. How would, about a term? At least, like I would say five years, but, you know. Yeah. yeah. Is that likely to happen? <clears throat> no, I mean, seriously, we haven't had real electoral reform in New Zealand for years, and it's tinkering around the edge because the current system suits the two major parties. It's better for them internally to be at each other's throat than it is to have a better outcome for electoral policies. There have been suggested reforms like um, getting rid of the tail that wags the dog. If you get into Parliament, you don't bring anybody else in. They've also suggested lowering the age to 16, and they've suggested having a, a 3% or 3.5% for getting your party into parliament. Mm -hmm. What do you think of that? Well, the first one about lowering the age to voting to 16, I certainly know that when I was 16, I was probably better informed on my vote than the average person was. So just to make it arbitrary that they're 16 or 18... I think I think 16's fine, and people who would say, "Oh, but what about what about their ability to make tough decisions?" We don't. We do recognise that dementia and other things hit us at the other end of life, and we don't cut off the upper end of voting. So I think that's a that's a spurious discussion. I think it's really, do you think that the the average 16 year old would be able to make as good a decision for an election as the average 18 year old? And I would say the answer probably is yes. I think. I don't know how far you keep pushing that age down, but 16 is a pretty old age now in New Zealand in terms of what we expect our young people to be able to do. Do you think that um, it might actually increase the amount of young people who vote? And if they do vote, people continue to vote, don't they, often? They do. I think, I think though, that the, the barrier to voting now... Is, is different. I think it's Delusion. back to what you think, what you were saying before, and that is do people feel that they are actually in contact with their politicians anymore? You know, every time there's an election, the radio hosts get out and they go, just go out and vote. And I'm like, that's kind of a random thing to do if you don't know why you're voting. Um, so I think participation in the electoral system depends on the faith that the voter has in the politician they're voting in. And dropping off in the poll, in the, especially in the general elections, I think is a reflection of the fact that people are starting to wonder whether their vote really has an impact. To me, in some ways, though I didn't expect anything much different, unfortunately, um, Jacinda Ardern had it off. She had the popular support. She had the ability to communicate. She could have brought in um, economic reform tax reform and so on but she said she wouldn't before before she even got elected and she didn't say we won't do it now she said while I'm in government now is this one reason why people get disillusioned is well, see, because they don't get leadership yeah because I, I would argue that I mean she showed leadership with COVID-19 well, actually, let's get back to what the politicians do and what does the permanent government do. So back in COVID-19, we actually happened to have, we were lucky to have the right people in the Ministry of Health who called the right call, told the politicians, this is what we need to do. And yes, I do acknowledge that the government got right in behind what they said and, and backed it properly. So I, I, I really have no criticism of the COVID response. I think it was the best in the world. Unfortunately, it's the only, the only thing that really stood out. Um, everything else, if you look at the polytech reforms, that didn't go down well. Remember the big housing activity that was going to happen and thousands of houses were going to be built and basically almost none got built? So, yes, one fantastic success surrounded by a whole heap of less than fantastic outcomes. And 
I really believe that we're talking about the machine of the party in as much as the same way as in the United States, the Democratic Party is incredibly centrist and therefore all the politicians are too because you've got these big media arms that are part of your party that are, that are analysing popularity. I mean, we get popularity polls in the paper like every two weeks. Their obsession is about where they sit on that poll, in my opinion, rather than do they have good policy. I'm not sure that we could do this or it would be right. But sometimes I wish uh, for the first three months before an election you couldn't take polls. I, yeah. I don't know. I mean, to be honest, it really comes down to another side, and that is that you need a party out there, and we just don't seem to have them at the moment, where they will be willing to risk losing an election over a principle. And and they understand their principles, and that's why you are aligned with or understand that party. It could be interesting, though, in this election, because I don't think Labor's going to get the majority again. That ain't going to happen. Well, it's absolutely not going to be single majority capacity. So they actually need the Mari Party and the Pacta Mari and the Greens. And it depends on if these two parties, um, how much courage they have and how much they want to, whether they want to change policy or they want to sit in cabinet. Yeah, I, I, a lot will come down in this election. I think when it's down, that the minor parties will be determining who's the government. And I think in that regard, they would be thinking, and I hope they are thinking now, what they were going to negotiate for when they go in. If I was a significant minor party, like the Greens or the Party Māori, I would have particular policies that were dependent on being executed before I would join the coalition. Oh, I hope they do, um, particularly on taxation and also climate change. Well, and the Greens got kind of burnt in the last coalition, so I think they'll be a bit more demanding this time. Well, it's hope so. Mm. Some of the candidates certainly seem more demanding. Yep. Now I play a piece of music. I think that it uh, goes with the discussion. <laughs> Too many, too many millionaires. Yeah. 
We're talking with uh, Councilman Jim O'Malley, and we're talking about the democracy. Do you think the Treasury has too much influence on politics? Well, I think there's powerful departments in the government, of which Treasury is one of them. Department of Internal Affairs is another very powerful one, Ministry of Health, Ministry of Education. But Treasury probably sits on that list is probably the most across the board of all departments so they, therefore they theoretically other departments. incredible influence on all other departments so does it have too much influence i think the issue is knowing how much influence it has it needs to be watched carefully as to whether or not policy coming out of treasury is being directed by the elected side of government or again back to my earlier point it's coming out of the heads of people who are permanent government employees because the relevant part of that is they weren't selected by any democratic process and if we're going to have a democracy, then we've got to see our democracy acting out in government policy. Do you think of the, one of the problems is that the, most, many of the uh, parties now don't seem to come in with strong policy of their own? And if you're going to have independent policy, you probably need to do a lot of homework before you ever get elected. Well, I think the other one, too, in, in terms of along that same lines, is we still end up, I mean, and this is a media issue, when you talk about Labor and National, all you're talking about right now is Hipkins and Luxon. And they've both got cabinets and shadow cabinets, and the cabinet ministers are almost never talked about. So you should have a good party coming in, should have someone who'd be a great minister of finance, someone who'd be a great minister of health, all these things. And then when you're interviewing on that particular subject, you're not interviewing the leader of the party, you're interviewing that politician who will be in charge of that part of the government. It's the same with councils. Everybody gets obsessed with mayors and nobody remembers that there's chairs of committees. I think one of the things that happens is that the cabinet ministers only get interviewed outside of the prime minister when they've done something uh, that the public doesn't like or the media doesn't like. Largely. And, and I think the other one is that if ministers don't have that status then they can also get away with not doing any work. And so you can have ministers who are appointed and you just don't notice them. Um, and if you look at cabinet shuffles these days, they happen so often that most ministers don't even get embedded in their, in their department before they're off to another ministry. Um, so how can you really influence? If you haven't been through at least one full funding cycle, which in modern governments three years apart, if you haven't been through one of those completely in a ministry, you won't know how it works. And yet most of them are ministers for six months, a year, and then they're off again because they've made a mistake and they get replaced. <laughs> when does a mistake come, become so serious that you need to be replaced? <clears throat> oh, I think the, the most obvious one, locally speaking, would have been when David Clark ignored the rules around quarantine and staying at home and went for a bike ride. As Minister of Health, that's that position of your own personal behaviour against what the government is asking and effectively demanding out of the population is too big a gap to be able to respond with, oh, I just made a mistake. Um, so it's the gap, it's the deviation away from what good behaviour looks like to whatever that event was. If it's too far, then a single activity is enough to get you 
bumped. If you're bumping away just a little distance off the centre line all the time, but you're doing it all the time, you you need a good tailing too, and then eventually you need to be removed if you won't get your act together. And that's kind of like woods over the Auckland Airport shares. <laughs> Seriously. How do you avoid this if you're a Prime Minister? If you look at all effective governments over the years, the Prime Minister has one big role to play, and that is to make sure their ministers are doing their job properly. Um, and I think you do have the right as the Prime Minister to get pretty upset with a minister who lets the whole government down through slack behaviour. So the Prime Minister's role in some respects is to keep those ministers doing their job properly, but also in the same respect, be involved, because you know, they get the final decision, being involved in picking the right person for the ministry in the, right, in the first place. Of course, in this government wasn't really... Um, he inherited the ministry. Oh, yeah, no, I think a, a Prime Minister this late in the cycle isn't responsible for the design at that point. They're basically taking the party through to the next election. Yeah. And I think the other one you have to deal with is, could you name me 20 New Zealand MPs? I think the reality of it is that we've got a lot of people sitting in the beehive, but the percentage that are actually really good is probably quite small. That's a sad fact. But that's, a, that's been a sad fact of democracy <laughs> all around the world forever. You've always been dealing with a, a subset of probably 20% to 25% of the politicians that do 80 to 90% of the work. Unfortunately, that number seems to be getting smaller and smaller and smaller. I had a discussion with a, a candidate that um, hasn't been played yet, and we talked about um, we talked about the social Marxist Socialist Party in Kerala, India. And he talked about the reason why they were successful. He said they had a cadre, and they were a mass party, and they were responsible to them, that mass party. That would be the same though as Labour now, wouldn't it? I mean, no, Labour is not a mass party. Mass? Did you say like as in large or a large? A group of people at the bottom who actually... Yeah, so in other words, your party has to be attached to a movement. Yeah, If, exactly. it, if there's no movement attached to it, then it's just intellectual and it doesn't get maybe visceral enough to do its job. And I'd say that's where Labour's lost its way over the years. The Labour movement underneath was told to go away in the 1980s, basically. And it's been wandering around in the fields of New Zealand ever since, wondering if they could find a party to come back to. Yeah. But anyway, that was. I think he was quite right to say that. I, I, I think he is right, and I also think that the conditions are coming around again now, where the disparity is wide enough that people are actually getting involved in politics again, even if they don't believe in the main parties, they're still wanting to get involved in some way or another. Which I firmly believe will see the formation of a, a new movement on the left in the next five years. which I would like to be part of, by the way, if it ever gets going. <laughs> well, the question is um, how you do that. I mean, I spent quite a bit of time. I've always said that I'm biased, but I spent quite a bit of trying to build up the first and new Labour Party and then the alliance. Mm-hmm. It's hard work. It's, a long, it it's be, a long game. I mm. think it's probably, in some ways, the one electoral form we had that's probably good was MMP. It may not be the best thing in the world, but it beat it first, beat first past the post, I think. It, it's funny, because I think each comes out with a different thing. I, I think MMP is better, but, it, but because it allows smaller parties to enter, it doesn't create the tension that's required under first past the post to get rid of the large left of centre party that's no longer left of centre. So first past the post would force, in my opinion, the big groundswell changes that you need, but the period leading up to it would be really sad. Um, MMP gives you a better type of government, but I think means then that the impetus for changing things transformatively gets weakened because those parties can exist in Parliament. They don't have to win the election to be a permanent fixture in Parliament. Greens would be a good example of that. So it's, it's different. 
you know, that said, I wouldn't go back to first past the post. Do the STV be better? I think STV actually would be really an interesting one because um, it, it would allow what that would do is it would allow challenges on the left in electorates where you wouldn't worry about accidentally putting in the right because you split the vote in the left over two candidates in a first-past-the-post environment. They'd be able to go against each other and one of them would get selected. So STV, I think, would be great to bring into the national politics at the level of selecting the um, MP. I think at the level of selecting the party, it probably could work there too. It wouldn't be as impactful because most people, would their vote would just go to their number one choice. We're not going to see much more electoral reform along those lines. We'll probably the fact of the matter is that the parties that are asked to do the electoral reform are the parties that are doing well under the existing system. So you have a catch-22 in that environment. There's no incentive for the major parties to change the rules in such a way that weakens them. It was actually surprising in a way that we got MNP. It was unusual circumstance. People were, as you say, upset. And so they provided a movement that at least got us to proportional representation. Yeah, and I think, and also, and I think at that stage, Labour, it used to be Labour got in for two terms and was tossed out for three. You know, it was getting less time in Parliament than National. I think they saw MMP as maybe something that would give them more time, so they were willing to put their weight in behind it. Um, and now, of course, not willing to go any further because it's about as far as I'd like to go. Well, I think once you got the referendum on MMP, it was... You had to go with it. Yeah. So where do we go from here? As you say, how do you, how do you build a movement? It takes a lot of commitment from people to do it at the start. And I know that certainly from my perspective, I'm almost burnt out from having just done local body politics. Um, it takes quite a lot out of you. Um, but I do think you need, I mean, I'm certainly quite keen to get involved in some way or another to get something going because what I see is it's a failure to, it's a failure to look after ourselves is what we're doing right now as we race to the centre because the centre is kind of a selfish place. Um, we need to be a bit more generous with our resources and our own wealth with each other so that growing up in, in New Zealand means the same for whoever's in whatever house they're born into. So that's not happening anymore. So there's definitely fertile ground there to be used to plant the new seeds in. And I think people have just got to start going out with new ideas. Do you think there should be any changes in the electoral financing? Well... One, I've never spent any money on running for council, um, and you probably needed to when you ran for mayor. No, well, probably, that's the point though. If I'd spent money on billboards and you'd just seen my face and a couple of comfortable words, and that changed the outcome of the mayoral election, then don't we have a problem? Because that means that basically you can, in effect, buy elections, even under the democratic environment, because you're influencing your um, ability to be in the face of the voter and a lot of people are making decisions based on familiarity of a name as much as anything else so these major parties are spending a fortune just quite literally giving you ads that could be toothpaste ads it's interesting I don't think we've ever seen the same disproportion of money as coming up in this election mm. uh, very few people have given the national party loads of money not not masses of people, not even hundreds of people, but, you know, you can count them on your fingers, but yet yep. they got the biggest, they, they've got more money than all the other parties combined. Mm -hmm. Not that, I don't know, won't necessarily get them into power, but they'll certainly help. And it says something that money's become such an important issue and that these people think that they can by giving thousands of dollars that it's worthwhile. Well, if they think it, it's probably because it is. Um, for some reason or another, it may just be nothing is other than those policies that that party will put in will be advantageous to this person when that party gets in. So it's not a direct corruption thing, but effectively it suits them for that party to be in power. I guess the way I'd like to take 
electoral finance reform is go in the other direction and actually just simply say that democracy is too important to be put up on the chopping block for sale and that in the in the in the government elections and then in the local body elections off cycle x million dollars gets put up for media support and and we buy space in the local newspapers, you buy space on television, you buy space on radio. That's all paid for by the government and then allotted to the candidates based on a formula of some sort or another. In that way, the ability to get out there and speak through the media and, and paying the media's burden of carrying you is covered. And yet what should then carry the day is the quality of the argument, not the frequency of the ads. It's a different way to approach it, and again, it will be to no advantage of the two big parties to bring that kind of change in because they can get the money they want and they can use the ads to do what they want. The left has a reputation for bringing in new ideas and, and uh, open, wide-ranging debate and free speech. Does the left still deserve that reputation? Would you talk about this? Well, I think the second half, opening, uh, open, wide-ranging debate and free speech, it's got to the point now where on the left, toleration, there seems to be a level of intoleration or intolerant behaviour towards people who, who do not toe the line directly. Um, and there's a lot of mud-throwing and names-calling if you, if you step out of line. So I think in some respects the left has got worse at allowing lots of different voices in there than it used to. Um, it is the place where new ideas come, but I don't think anything new and wide-ranging and transformative has come out of, let's say, Labour at least, um, in the last decade. You think people are more cautious about what they say and how, and how they, um, what ideas they put forward under the present? Not because people are afraid of going to jail, but they're afraid that they'll lose people's respect or... Well, it's hacked in the media. There's a lot of use of terms out there that can be quite lazily used and are quite damaging to the person they're used on. So, racist is a good one at the moment, you know. So, I'm not even going to give my opinion on the university logo, but there's been a strong response to the change in the logo, and then everybody, and then there's been a group say, well, if you oppose the new logo change, you're a racist. And it's like, well, there's got to be a little bit more to that discussion than that. And when it gets that simplistic, it becomes hard to have sophisticated conversations around important touch points. So I think, yeah, we've got a little bit intolerant with each other. How does that change? Is that... Can they be, how do you get it, once you get um, people, once certain subjects and certain ideas have become uh, beyond, uh, you know, beyond the scope, how do you open, how do you open up debate once you get it, once you narrow things down? It's complex. It's hard to do it at that time because I think, you know, we, again, we have a tendency to look at the US and laugh at them for how entrenched the Trump supporters are against the Democrats and all that sort of stuff. But we're not exempt that behaviour ourselves these days. And people have tended to get into, they, whatever their position is, they entrench themselves like we're all on Facebook. And then they just start thinking that abusive statements and dismissive statements are legitimate behaviours of communicating in the modern democratic process and the problem with that is that you are all you're going to do is end up forming camps I've always thought and I think this more strongly now than in the past that one of the worst things you can do in public life is have contempt for the people you disagree with even if you disagree with them quite strongly yeah yeah um um I heard, I'm trying to remember the name of the politician, but it was basically, um, you should always listen to those in opposition because they will have in their opposition pieces of information that are valid to your views of the world as well. And I think that's the relevant point there, that the position you have should be able to be defended based on some logical reason for why you're there. You should always explore 
any opposition for its logic. You can't just dismiss it. You've got to ask, why did you end up thinking that way? Because if you can get to the bottom of that logic, then either you'll be changed because you'll see something that made you think differently, or you can, ex- you can challenge the person in a manner that allows them to change because you're arguing about the actual rationale for why you hold your position at the moment. But right now we go, your position is, and it sits in a list under a header of, and if we don't like that header, we just say you are a, and we give them that title and we walk away. But to me this not only stifles debate, but it also, I think, encourages anger and alienation, especially if your position's a minority position. Well, I think... I think I think that's what I'm saying. I think we've got so used to behaving this way on Facebook that now we do it everywhere, and and can say very hurtful and 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 intellectually violent things to people, and 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 feel so self righteous in what we've done that we walk away and we clap our hands as we do, as we've done it, and and it will that all that will do is drive people underground. You'll never get that debate that you need. So it's it's not been a good thing. Where do you think the future of, of online discussion is? How would you deal with it? I mean, it's just, it is what it is. I mean, I think in the old days, 200 years ago, they used to have pamphleteers. People would walk down the street and throw their Facebook posts out on, you know, on a little piece oh, of paper. Yeah. Um, Tom, Thomas Paine. So, yes, in other words, the, the behaviour of using whatever media you have in front of you to put out your ideas, whatever, how well or, or unwell-founded they are, has always been there. The vehicle of social media makes it that much easier, which means then obviously there's that many more people involved. And I don't, I don't know what we can do about the fact of whether they are or are not informed, because obviously informed is a relative term as well. Um, it's just a new reality. You just have to deal with the fact that it's there. The, it seems to me that um, we're going to have change, whether we like it or not. Be, partly because of climate change, that's going to change mm. society in a big way that, that we can't even be sure of. And the other thing is, I think the the economy is going to be more become more fragile. Than if anything more inequal and even more inequalitarian. I think, yeah, it almost seems like, in fact, that stable economies and stable democracies go through a series of cycles where you go to as equitable as you can make them and people forget how good that was and then they start going after greed and then they become inequitable and then they get to the point where they're so inequitable that it's intolerable anymore. And lo and behold, you start looking at policies that were used um, in the past and start reenacting them going that seemed to work back then and it'll probably work again now so I think we're into a cycle that would put us somewhere around about 1910 1920 last time we were in that cycle it seems to me that um, one thing that haven't been talked about even in, for a long time is the common good it's, an, it's actually an old not an old term but an old philosophy mm. And the common good's good because it can cover so much, including the the good of the, the earth that we live in. Mm-hmm. Do you think people, how do you get people to think about the common good? It seems to me that one of the things that's happened is we, we worship diversity more than finding out what we have in common and what is the common good. I don't, I don't know if we have to undermine our pursuit of diversity to... I don't think that necessarily would deliberately un, directly undermine the pursuit of the common good. Because in the pursuit of the common good, you're basically saying that you're going to reduce some of your personal rights and give them over to the common, and then you intellectually have to understand that in fact you're doing, it's better for you to do that than it is to remain selfish and that's, it's that intellectual jump that people have to make that we lived in until 
honestly, Roger Douglas turned up and said, no, that's all wrong. Acquisition of wealth and the free market is the best way to run an economy. And the reason that we're having a, a downtime now is because there's just been too much of this soft behaviour. And so we went right into, it's good to get wealthy, it's good to accrue wealth. But now we're seeing the consequence of that. So we're going to go back to, you have to share it around a bit. And that gets back to the common good and gets back to that concept that any person born in New Zealand should have the same opportunity for success. And we know that that's not, that's a little bit pie in the sky, but it shouldn't be to the point now where it's basically not even slightly true. And then on the other aspect of it, the environment, our long-term sustainability, again, profit should not ever come over and above damage. Right? Simple as that. What are your hopes personally and politically? Um, I'm, I'm looking at probably not running again for council after this election just because I need to take a break from it all. Um, I am I am really interested in taking a break and then talking about getting this idea of a social movement going again because I really believe that New Zealand is right for it right now and it, but it needs the right leaders and it needs the right movement behind it. And just forming a party straight up with a couple of well-known names, which is what's happened in the past, like with Top and other such things. It's too fast and it's too ephemeral and it doesn't really bite in. You need to be a little bit more patient and build up a movement so you understand what it is you're facing. So what is a real clear consensus of understanding what is it's making first-time house buyers, why is it hard for them to buy a house? You've got to understand that first before you start coming in with the policies as to how you're going to approach it. And I think at the same time that you establish that movement, you're looking for people who turn up to the meetings who have the right level of commitment, the right level of emotional intelligence as well as intellectual intelligence. You know, EQ and IQ together are what makes up the person. So I guess that's what I'm going to get into when I take my hiatus is to get into maybe trying to get a movement going for a new central government party. Well, thanks a lot for coming on board the radio station. Thanks, Marvin. It's always a pleasure. And thanks for getting involved in city council politics. That's been a big eye-opener, to be honest. I've learned a lot about systems as much as anything else. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.